sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to the home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this with one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth and we need yours. Now, last week we talked with Karina Brissetta of New Wave Feminists and discussed how migrants fleeing violence and the effects of climate change in their home countries often find themselves the targets of violence and exploitation in Mexico as they wait for asylum claims to be processed in the United States. And in that conversation, we learned that the Mexican border has often been a fluid place with families split on either side and how the U.S. policy seems to be focused right now on providing a military solution to a humanitarian problem. And if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know to every current policy there is a historical origin. So this week, I spoke with Julia Young, professor of history at Catholic University, to discuss the history of Mexican migration into the United States and the history of our country's immigration laws. Julia is the author of Mexican Exodus, Emigrants, Exiles, and Refugees from the Cristero War, and has some keen insight into how America's early immigration laws and patterns of migration across the Mexican border have contributed to the situation we have today. Now, a couple notes before we start. I just spoke with Julia on Tuesday, and I felt this conversation teed up the following episodes in this series too well to wait until next week to put it out. So pardon any rough edits. Secondly, is longtime listeners will know that as the grandson of immigrants, I have some very sharp opinions on the issue that I make known during this episode, which I hope don't distract from the larger message for those of you who might fall on the opposite side. Feel free to shoot me an email if you feel I'm being unfair. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. The timing of this of this conversation specifically is interesting because two things happened yesterday. And the first one, and I'll go backwards because I think this will dovetail yeah. into what we're going to talk about. So my aunt... In 1950, she had graduated college, moved to Rome, worked mm-hmm. in the U.S. consulate in Rome, and met and married an Italian man. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know my grandparents came from Ireland mm-hmm. at a time when Americans didn't like the Irish, and also at a time when Irish didn't like Italians. And so at any rate, I, this letter that I read is my aunt just trying to gradually ease her parents into the idea that she's mm-hmm. marrying an Italian man. But the second part that I found really interesting was that she said to get a tourist visa to the United States, Italian citizens had to leave a deposit of $10,000 with the Roman consulate. And I did the calculator to adjust it for inflation, and it's 100000 in today's dollars just to get a tourist visa into the U.S. from yeah. Italy. Yeah. Now, the second thing that made it interesting and totally coincidental is I was reading this letter on Columbus Day. And as a historian, you probably know the whole origins of the holiday, correct? Absolutely, yeah. 
Can, yeah. can you talk about that? Because I think that that's that's yeah, well, super interesting. Uh, yeah, I've given little talks on that because Columbus Day is such a complicated thing, right? And I'm here at Catholic University where we have a really close relationship with the Knights of Columbus and they sponsor professorships here and they've paid for buildings and, and we have student members of the Knights of Columbus, right? And for them, for the Knights of Columbus, for students who belong to the Knights of Columbus, and then for a whole group of our Italian-American Catholic students, like you are not going to take Columbus Day away from them <laughs> because Columbus Day is about Italian-American pride. And it's about Italian-Americans organizing to create this holiday or to push for the creation of this holiday at a time when it's Italians were experiencing marginalization and discrimination as immigrants to the United States. And so for them, it was about elevating this figure in Italian history, but elevating an Italian, right? And elevating themselves within American society, which is something that today, like, I think we can, lots of people can understand and sympathize with, right? But then you have this other, this other perspective which is shared by a lot of indigenous people in the United States and then a lot of people with indigenous heritage in Latin America who say, why are we elevating Columbus? Because he represents the decimation of our people, right? And both things are true. Mm -hmm. And so it's well, one thing I like to talk about with my students is that we're not the only country that's fighting over Columbus in the Western Hemisphere, right? All over Latin America, there are groups of people that are pulling down Columbus statues. They just did it in Mexico, I think last year or the year before, and trying to replace them with other things or just make the point that we shouldn't be celebrating Christopher Columbus. But here in the United States, we do have this interesting other history of how Columbus Day came about and our elevation of Christopher Columbus in U.S. society that actually has to do with a marginalized immigrant group. So who feels attacked when we say we've got to tear down the Columbus statues? Yeah. I. So first off, I don't know why they just didn't pick Americus Vespucci because he was the right. Italian right. cartographer who, yeah. I don't know what he did. But the, the interesting thing that, that as I was looking into the history of Columbus Day as well, is that if you look at how the Italian community at the time was described, you could pretty much cut and paste the word Mexican over Italian, and you have, I think, the modern day rhetoric about yeah. our border in a lot of yeah. ways, which is the Italians were resented for uh, taking American jobs. They were thought to bring crime over, you know, all these same fears have, have translated right. to a different group. But I think if we go further back, as I was doing my research, the anti-immigrant sentiment was has existed for as long as people have been coming over here from Ireland or from Italy or whatnot. I mean, I would even say for human history. But, true, true, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, in the U.S., sure. I mean, I think it goes all the way back, and I don't have it in front of me, but there's a famous quote from Benjamin Franklin where he complains about all the Germans, and he's he expresses this great anxiety that the Germans are going to come and they're going to ruin this nascent U.S. culture, and they're going to they're going to make everyone speak German. They're not going to learn English, and expresses mm -hmm. those anxieties. So I anyway, know. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. No. No. I feel like America is just a history of unwanted arrivals, effectively, but. It, it seems like there's no real push to establish any laws or establish any regulations around who can and can't enter the country for some time. When did that change? You see sort of like nascent 
restriction laws and movements after independence. There's a Naturalization Act of 1790, so that's pretty early. That's just a rule about who can naturalize. And so they're supposed to be free white persons of good moral character, right? So always this concern about which people and, and who should they be and what kind of people should they be that can come to the United States and then become U.S. citizens. And then concern over immigration really kind of builds throughout the 19th century. And it really builds along with the waves of migrants. So you've already been talking about Irish migrants that start coming after the famine in the 1840s, right? This huge new number of Irish migrants. And then as we get into the 1870s and 1880s, we have more and more migrants from parts of Europe that had not been sending migrants before. So especially Southern and Eastern Europe. And then we also have migrants coming from Asia. So really starting like with the construction of the railroads and the arrival of Easterners in the U.S. West, right, and what becomes the U.S. West. So like after 1848, we start to see Chinese migrants coming to the Pacific and working on the railroads, working in the gold mines. And so after the mid-1800s, immigration is diversifying in the United States in ways that were unprecedented. And so throughout that century, you see concern just growing and growing about who's coming and what type of people they are and whether they're going to be good for the nation, right? And whether they're going to be good for the native born. And let me just like take a little sidebar here and talk about nativism, right? Like this idea that there's a native born, right? And there's a there's a native population. And that's a sort of problematic and complicated idea that we could talk about, right? <laughs> and that that outsiders, in this case immigrants, represent a threat to the native born of some kind. And we have these ideas about ourselves as a nation. And one of the ideas we have about ourselves is that we're a nation of immigrants, right? Like we all kind of learn that in school and we see pictures of the Statue of Liberty and we read the poem and we feel good about ourselves. And and it's true. We are a nation of immigrants. But I think we also need to be a little more honest. And this would be good if we could talk about this in schools. We're a nation of immigrants and we're also a nation of nativism, right? We're a nation whose immigration has been shaped by nativism. Mm -hmm. So 1882 is sort of the benchmark year. Get to like almost the last 20 years of, of the 19th century And we have the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is the first most sweeping federal restrictionist immigration law that is on the books. And it's often talked about as the first major immigration law. And that's where we start talking about immigration law. And it restricts all Chinese immigration to the United States for a period of 10 years. And then it's renewed periodically. And then other legislation is created that expands the exclusion of Asian immigrants, right? So so subsequently it'll be Japanese and Koreans and Filipinos and and so that that law is a response to growing concerns over these sort of new and quote unquote different immigrant groups mm. that are coming in. And there's a, there's a concurrent US Immigration Act that same year that levies a head tax on immigrants. So you mentioned the the your uncle, I think, who had to yeah, pay that course visa. Yeah. Right, right. So this idea of charging immigrants to come in is also a way of weeding them out, right? Because if you can't pay the head tax, then you're too poor and you shouldn't be here because you're too poor, mm. right? 
And that other 1882 law also makes certain categories of immigrants ineligible for citizenship, including so-called lunatics and then people who are likely to become a public charge. And that's interesting because that's something we saw recycled during the Trump administration. There was a discussion about can we can we sort of resurrect that law or resurrect the, the public charge law? And yeah. that means a public charge like likely to be dependent on the welfare state, right? What, to be dependent that, on welfare. Yeah, that surprised me because it doesn't seem like we had the strongest social safety net at the time. So what were they worried about? Uh, paupers. I mean, again, nativism encompasses all kinds of fears and concerns, right? Nativism can be fears that immigrants are going to be dangerous and harmful to the native born. Okay, why? Because they're too different, right? Because they can't possibly assimilate. So there you see Chinese immigrants Mm. because they're inherently dangerous and they're criminal. And there you see Italian immigrants get get all and lots of different immigrants will get categorized in this way at that time. And then because they're going to be too much of a burden on society, they're going to cost society too much. They're, they're a threat to the native born. And so we need to have legislation that will make sure that they don't come in, right? That will restrict these particular groups that we're worried about. I mean, it was really amazing that some of the things that came out during the Trump administration, some of the ways that this language, like this exact language was echoed by Donald Trump and by others in his administration, right? Like, I don't know if you remember, and I don't remember exactly when this was, but when he sort of said, why won't people come from Norway and Sweden? Why can't we get immigrants from Norway and Sweden, right? This idea that there are good immigrants and there are bad immigrants, and we should try to get the good ones, and we should try to exclude the bad ones. And the bad ones are the rapists and the murderers. You know, I'm, again, sort of like paraphrasing or quoting Trump, but these ideas that he expressed during his presidency and in his campaign for for the 2016 election were, are really old ideas. And they go back to, I mean, certainly in U.S. legislation and U.S. public conversation, they go back to the late 19th century, the late 1800s. So when I, it was funny, I was watching the 2016 campaign alongside my parents. Mm-hmm. And when I heard Trump's rhetoric, the first people I thought of were my grandparents. Because my, mm-hmm. I mean, my grandmother has one story about a woman she worked for when she first arrived here. And the woman never bothered to learn her name and called her Molly and called all the other Irish servants mm-hmm. Molly because all mm-hmm. the Irish women were named Molly. Right. And there was, a, there was another story she told about the time she brought my mom and her siblings to this department store. And there was this daycare there that you could drop your kids off when you were going shopping and she went to drop them off and the woman at the gate said they don't take immigrants. And this Mm. was like, this was like the 1950s. Now my parents voted for Trump and Mm -hmm. that was, that was always a big question in my mind as to how they could hold those two ideas or hold the, you know, hold that heritage and those ideas in the same spot. Oh, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's one question though, because I I, I don't want to miss the, the run up to this, which is, it, it seems like there's this period of time where Congress is kind of playing almost like ethnic whack-a-mole and mm-hmm. you know, they, they have the yeah. Chinese Exclusion Act. And then, then all of a sudden Japanese and Filipino immigrants start right. arriving. So they have to exclude them. And then they've got the problem with Southern and Eastern Europeans. Exactly. So 1882, we're trying to exclude Chinese migrants. And then we're trying to exclude this, these kind of vague categories of migrants with the head tax and with, with the laws against likely to become a public charge. But immigrants keep coming, right? In fact, 
it's the 1880 to 1930 period is the period of the most intense immigration, most highest numbers of immigrants to the United States as a proportion of the population until we get to the period we're living in now, the kind of 1990 to maybe 2010 period. And, and so Congress, they have to keep figuring out new legislative ways to respond to these migrants and to keep the quote-unquote undesirable ones out while allowing the desired ones to come in. And so what they come up with is the quota system. And those are its two sets of laws, but in the Emergency Quota Act of 1921 and then the Johnson-Reed Act of 1924, And they place caps on the number of immigrants who can come from specific countries. And the lowest caps are on the countries considered least desirable as sources of immigrants. So it's Southern and Eastern European countries that are sending Jewish migrants, that are sending Italian migrants, obviously, Greeks, Poles, Slavs, all of the people who at that time are not considered to be white because they are not considered to be Anglo-Saxon. And then Asian migrants by the 1920s are blocked completely through the Chinese Exclusion Act and then subsequent legislation. And so by 1924, you have these really massive restrictions on people based entirely on the region where they were born. And those laws will stay on the books until 1965. And so that's the immigration landscape of this huge chunk of the 20th century, right? Yeah. And so what's going on on the border with Mexico at this time? So Mexican migration has almost its own historical trajectory. It really begins to pick up in the 1920s, just as these quota laws are taking effect. Although they take a little while to take effect, they really go into effect in the in the very late 1920s. So Mexican migration is increasing in the 1920s, and it's because, like all migrations, because of push factors and pull factors. So there are things going on in Mexico that are pushing people out of Mexico, like the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920 and and the resultant devastation and poverty in the countryside. Then also the creation of the construction of railways connecting Mexico to the United States. And then also things like irrigation in the Southwest, which create a huge agricultural industry in the Southwest, in the part of the United States that used to be Mexico, right? And that's a pull factor that brings Mexicans up to the United States. The manufacturing industries are also in increasingly in demand of laborers in Chicago and then in, in Los Angeles, in Texas. And so you see this rising Mexican migration, but it's It doesn't enter the nativist consciousness quite as early because it's somewhat of a later migration, right? Like Mexican migration before 1920, it happens. There are Mexicans who migrate in the 1890s. It's mostly very localized to Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, like the border states. It's mostly very seasonal. So it's people coming up to the U.S. and then coming back down. Yeah. I guess another thing to mention is that the U.S.-Mexican border is essentially open, the Border Patrol is only founded in 1924, and they have something like 20 officers to patrol the entire border, right? Like, it takes a really long time to get to where we are today with patrolling the U.S.-Mexico border. So Mexican migration is this kind of different thing, is this different phenomenon, and there are certainly people that express nativist anxiety about Mexicans, but there's also a 
group that continues to push for Mexican migration, and that's the agricultural lobby, which is growing more and more important in the early 20th century, right? And so those quota laws in the 1920s will actually exclude the Western Hemisphere. So Mexicans are not affected by the quota laws. And so that's like a carve-out then for the agricultural and industrial lobby? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, partly. There were lawmakers who wanted to apply the quota laws to Mexicans, and they didn't get what they wanted in part because of the agricultural lobby. Agricultural companies were going down to Mexico in in the 1920s to recruit Mexican labor migrants. The railroad companies were also going down to recruit Mexican laborers to work on the railroads. And always industries are attuned to the labor market, right? These various industries are attuned to the labor market. And as the quota laws are taking effect, meaning that fewer people are able to come from Europe, there's even more incentive to keep the border open to Mexicans or to to keep Mexi- to exclude Mexicans from the quota laws and make sure that Mexicans still c- can come. And there was widespread awareness that Mexicans could be seasonal migrants and that they might be less likely than Italian migrants or Polish migrants to come and 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 settle and put down roots and stay, right? Something you said that, that jumped out at me was that we have these quota laws instituted in the 1920s that are blatantly racist. So yeah. they blatantly incorporate race and ethnicity into the Absolutely. equation. There's no couching it in, in polite terms. But it also happens to coincide with the creation of the Border Patrol. Is that a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence, although the Border Patrol is not just established to restrict Mexican migrants, right? It's also established to restrict any migrants that would cross to the United States from the southern border. And in fact, after the Chinese exclusion law, it became, you know, one avenue for Chinese migrants to come into the United States and to escape the restrictions of the of the 1882 law would be to come from the southern border, right? And so one of the earliest concerns around building, like building a wall or building a fence was to keep Chinese migrants out of the United States who might come up from the southern border, right? So the concern was, yes, there were concerns about Mexican migrants. Yes, there was overt racism directed at Mexican migrants, but there was also concern about just the border as a vulnerable point for undesired immigrants in general, right? Understood. Understood. And so, and it's, and that's not to say that Mexicans didn't suffer from from these exclusive policies and weren't targeted at the border because they absolutely were. In the 1920s, they were subjected to the the same the head tax, the literacy tax. U.S. border officials started enacting this attempt to control disease by like inspecting migrants who crossed at the border and spraying them with chemicals and making them all disrobe in front of each other, right? But the fact remains that in the 1920s, Mexicans, in comparison to some other groups, could still cross into the United States relatively easily, partly because of this expectation that they would be there as seasonal workers, partly because of lobbying by the by these different industries I've talked about that wanted to make sure that they had continued access to cheap Mexican labor or to cheap immigrant labor, right? Mm. Okay, so I just said in the US, we're a country, we're a nation of immigrants and we're a nation of, of nativism, right? And we're also a nation that wants to exclude people and then we're with immigration law and with our border policy, but we're also a nation that really, really wants cheap labor and needs 
laborers, right? For, for, you know, I mean, with the exception of various economic downturns, especially the Great Depression period, we've always had a greater demand for labor than our native-born population can supply. And maybe it's because we have a greater demand for cheap labor. So, yeah. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask something super controversial and, 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 and I, and I'm hoping you can shed some light on it. I think it's easy to look back at the dialogue around immigration and the laws around immigration and point to a lot of the eugenics and Mm -hmm. theories of racial superiority and so on that were injected in there. If we separate that from the rest of the arguments, was there any truth to the claim, for example, that the folks arriving from Asia and from Southern and Eastern Europe were a drain on public coffers or any truth Mm. to the fact that they brought criminality. So if we, again, if we focus on the Italians, for example, you, of course we had organized crime come over. Right. So tell me about that. Right. Um, Okay. So this is probably, I, I, I can't offer a definitive answer to this, but I think that's because I'm not sure there really is one. I mean, this is like a whole, school of, or I don't know, the whole population of economists, especially that debate Mm -hmm. this, right? Like are immigrants a drain on society or are immigrants a benefit to to society because they come and they work and they foster economic growth through their labor and they allow industries to grow that might not grow otherwise, right? I mean, I think part of the problem with that debate are, is, how do you even measure, how do you quantify all of yeah. the things that the qualities that immig- immigrants bring to our country, right? Like they bring their culture, they bring their food and that food and culture becomes our, you know, great American tapestry that we all live in, right? But then I also think it's easy to be very romantic about immigrants and immigration throughout history. There's this narrative, like they suffered and then they, but they persevered and they, and now we all eat I don't know, spaghetti bolognese, like together, wonderful. That's kind of my favorite is, is, is the whole assimilation thing. Because you're you're not drinking green beer on St. Patrick's day and eating pizza with it because the Irish and the Italians assimilated. Right. You just found out pizza was really good. And (laughs) and then that, and then being Italian all of a sudden became cool. So I think that the, the, the assimilation argument, I think is just flat out been disproven time and time and time and time again. It just becomes part of American culture in my estimation. I mean, in some ways it becomes, it's this sort of trap, right? Because it becomes this positive narrative of immigration that, yeah, like you point out, really isn't true in a lot of ways. And then it also becomes a way for people with immigrant ancestors to then feel anti-immigrant today. And I wrote an article once about that started with a, a vignette from a classroom experience I had where I, ta- I was talking about Mexican migrants and I was talking about language acquisition and how studies have shown that most Mexican migrants in the second generation, the children learn English and are bilingual. And by the third generation, they generally just speak English, right? Just yeah. like previous waves of migrants. And yeah. the student raised his hand and he was like, no, we were different. My, my grandma came from Italy and she learned English right away and she assimilated and we were different than these new immigrants that are coming. And for me, that was like, ah, I see. It's not, it's not automatic that people say, oh, my ancestors were immigrants and therefore I sympathize with the new waves of immigrants that are coming, right? In fact, oh, yeah. in fact it's sort of more 
maybe more intuitive that people say, well, my ancestors came, but they did it right. You know, mm -hmm. whether it's like they assimilated or whether it's, oh, they waited in line, they waited their turn, they did it legally. And then you insert your nativist ideas, right? Like they're yeah. dangerous, they're harmful, they're bad for the economy, they're taking our jobs, all of, they're harmful to the native, to, to us, the native born population who are descendants of immigrants, right? You're like summarizing Sunday dinner at my parents' house right now. It's, <laughs> it's really, yeah. it's really uncanny. You know, I want to get back to when they start placing restrictions on Mexican immigration, because you mentioned mm. agriculture and, and industry, they have their way for a while and get a nice cheap supply of labor from, mm. from Mexico, but then the nativists succeed. And why? Okay, yes and no. So Mexican migration almost has its own trajectory, partly because the demand for Mexican labor is always, like once it starts, it's almost insatiable in the United States. And it's very dependent on economic health and downturns in the United States. So when our economy booms, we want Mexican labor. So I've said already, Mexican migration incre increases and becomes a real phenomenon in the 1920s. In 1929, we have the Great Depression, right? And the, this tremendous economic downturn in the United States and around the world. And the quota laws have already sort of eliminated migration from everywhere else. And so people's attention in places where there are large communities of Mexicans, where Mexicans have started to form like barrios or neighborhoods. So especially in the, again, in the U.S. Southwest, but then also in the Midwest, Chicago, Detroit, there's actually these major drives to deport Mexicans. Where there are Mexicans, the native-born society sort of turns against Mexicans. And the, here it's mostly for economic reasons. It's they're a drain on society, we don't have jobs, they don't have jobs, we need to send them back home. And so historians have written about this period, sort of 1929 to like mid to late 1930s, and they're collectively referred to these drives to deport Mexicans as repatriations, which is kind of a nice mm. name for it. Um, yeah, that's nice. And they're literally like driven out of town, driven out of town government, you know, local governments will put them all on trains and send them back across the border, including many, many of them were actually U.S. citizen children because they were born in the United yeah. States. So that has some echoes of later things that would happen that, that are happening today. Right. And then uh, then migrants also some Mexican migrants also do go home voluntarily or go back to Mexico voluntarily because there are no jobs in the United States. Right. But then what happens after the Great Depression is World War II and the economy booms again. And we're sending native born male workers out of the country to be GIs. And so all kinds of industries, again, agriculture, manufacturing, really need laborers. And so then we actually have the creation of a legal migration program, but like it's a it's a labor agreement between Mexico and the United States. It's called the Bracero program. Yeah. So, yeah. So it runs from 1942 to 1964. It's a guest worker program. And it's something that we didn't have before and we've never had it since. Right. And it allows Mexican migrants to come here legally, but temporarily to work in the various industries where their labor is needed. And it's again, it's done with the cooperation of both the Mexican government and the U.S. government. The problem with the Bracero program is that there never were as many permits as there were migrants who wanted to go and employers who wanted to employ them. And so mm -hmm. a parallel undocumented migration develops 
alongside the Bracero program. And some people argue that actually the Bracero program, even though it's this legal guest worker officially sanctioned migration program actually is at the root of the creation of undocumented Mexican migration, right? Because it, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't yeah. give enough people access to the visas that they would need. And then the Bracero program ends in 1964 and nothing replaces it. And so these labor patterns have been developed, right, of Mexican migrants coming up and working in the fields. Again, lots of it is seasonal, but also some portion of those Mexicans who come will settle in various cities and towns and communities in the U.S. And when the Bracero program ends and nothing replaces it, you still have the demand for labor in the U.S. So you still have the pull factor. And then you still have a bunch of push factors in Mexico, most notably like a huge population boom in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, where you have a ton of young workers and not enough work for them in Mexico. And of course, the wage differential. And mm. so then when the Bracero program goes away, you start to see really kind of like in the 70s, 80s and 90s, just this massive growth in undocumented Mexican migration. And one reason for this, and here we have to bring up something new, is the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, right? Mm -hmm. Which does away with the quota system. But if you remember, the quota system doesn't apply to the Western Hemisphere. But the 1965 1965 law establishes essentially a quota on the Western Hemisphere. Um, It puts a cap on the number, on the total number of immigrants that can come from the Western Hemisphere. And so just as the Bracero program ends and this like legal pathway for Mexican migrants to come ends, while it's like we celebrate it today because it did away with these really racist, awful quota laws, it also really created the conditions for undocumented Mexican migration and undocumented Latin American migration. I I think one thing I'm, I'm hearing is like there's this pull and tug between nativist tendencies and the demands of the labor market. Yeah. And there also seems to be an equal kind of ebb and flow of when immigration becomes a hot issue and and where it becomes a hot issue, who's the target of it. Is there some consistency or are there some factors that allow for these nativist tendencies to gain traction that are consistent throughout history. One thing to kind of take away from the history discussion, the historical discussion of all of this is just the cyclicality of it, right? Like history doesn't, it's the famous quote that history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes, right? But like it's, history doesn't repeat itself exactly, but you, boy, do you hear echoes of that historical nativism, those historical concerns about migrants. And even in the legislation that gets proposed, you hear there are echoes of earlier legislation that, you know, has mostly not worked. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's mostly not worked the way it's been intended to work. In the U.S., we try to engineer immigration and we're constantly trying to engineer immigration. But it's one of those things that resists engineering because it's it's in really impacted by so many more complex factors than the laws that we develop or by the enforcement that we send down to the border, mm. right? Immigration is shaped by these really complicated push factors in the origin region and these complicated pull factors in our region. And until we address those push and pull factors, all the laws we develop and all the money we send down to the border and all the, you know, infrared lights or or drones or whatever we're doing now on the border, like 
it, it will it will maybe change things on the edges, but it's not going to impact the kind of fundamental forces that are leading to migration. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review on your favorite platform. Five or more stars would be delightful, but again, use good judgment. For additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day, you can sign up for YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com news. Lastly, you can find Julia's book, Mexican Exodus, Emigrants, Exiles, and Refugees of the Cristero War in the link in the show notes. Now, if I had to give this episode a cutesy title, it'd be I Can't Quit You Cheap Labor because it seems to sum up the love-hate relationship America has historically had with immigration. And while a rise in the foreign-born population has often stoked fear and resentment amongst native-born Americans, efforts to exclude a given population have more often than not backfired. In the case of the 1800s, exclusion of migrants from Asia and Eastern and Southern Europe only created a labor shortage that was eventually filled by migrants from Mexico. And I can't imagine it's a total coincidence that we're dealing with a labor shortage and rising inflation now with immigration at an all-time low due to COVID and more restrictive policies. Now, we need a border and we need some way to regulate who can work and under what conditions in this country as we'll only open the door to depress wages and worker exploitation if we don't. But we also need to recognize a lot of the fears people have of those coming into this country, especially those from Latin America, have been applied to every group of new arrivals who've come here. The Irish, Italians, Chinese, Jewish were all accused of taking American jobs and bringing crime into the country at one time. And a fun fact we didn't discuss during our conversation, but the first time Columbus Day was celebrated nationally was after 11 Italian immigrants were lynched by an angry mob in New Orleans. And while it's a controversial holiday for some, if you're going to celebrate it, I think a good way to do so would be to remember what can happen when we allow ourselves to be whipped into a frenzy by people looking to stoke fear for political gain. If you have any comments, I would love to hear them. So email me at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N, like heydan, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's director of continuous improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe, YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye. <laughs>